grab our Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 7. If we get out late, it's of course Danny's fault this week, right? I was the shoebox guy last week, and uh, so it's Danny's fault. I, 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 uh, he picks on me, I get to pick on him, so all complaints. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, you'll find it page 280 of your pew Bibles, and if you will stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. Still working our way through the life of David, the king who would be shepherd now that we are in 2 Samuel. We want to start in verse 18 and read his poetic prayer. The writer of 2 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 18, And King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. And according to all that we have heard with our eyes, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and nation and its gods, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Your name will be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask as always you open our hearts, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Would you be so kind as to give us an attitude of thanksgiving for your glory and your praise alone. May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. Are you this morning burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy? that you are called to bear. Count your every blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, do not be discouraged, God is over all. Count your many blessings, angels will attend. Help and comfort give you to your journey's end. I don't know how many times we sang that growing up. I think we mostly sang it because it was a fast song that you can get through quite quickly, right? And our piano player loved to play fast. You know, that was one of those songs like Lean on the Everlasting Arm that was borderline hip-hop the way, way it was played. So amid the conflict, whether great or small, right? You can go, you can go quite, quite fast. But I remember as, as a child singing that song, and I thought it was an odd song. Because it implied every step you take, every breath you breathe, everything you do, you should pause and give praise and glory to the God 
who allowed it. But as I've aged, I have seen the great wisdom that is there. Yeah, you'll notice that in that classic hymn, it isn't just in all the good things you get to enjoy, the steps you take and the words you speak, but even amid the conflict, whether great or small, to pause and to count your blessings and to name them one by one by one. I suspect that if you and I, if if we had a homework assignment, and that homework assignment was to come up with a list of, 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 of the character traits of a Christian, we would, all of us would put on that list some of the same things. Love, patience, joy, selflessness, a servant's heart, contentment, meekness, humility, kindness. We, we would put some of the same list on there, but I'm willing to bet for many of us, dare I say most of us, we would overlook one of the most vital uh, uh, character traits of the Christian that saturates every page of the Bible. Somehow we miss it as Americans. And that, of course, is thanksgiving. Here is David coming off the heels of God's gracious gift of covenantal renewal. And he responds the way we should respond to God's blessings. And that is with gratitude. What we see in this, in, in this prayer, and most scholars break it down the way that we will break it down this morning, is, is that David goes about it by asking a series of questions. The first is, who am I? And when he's asking this question, he's reflecting on his presence. You see it there in verses 18 through 21. Who am I? Is actually listed there in verse 18. Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? At the heart of thanksgiving is, without a doubt, humility. It is why the average American and our nation in general is not very thankful. Think about it. We are so ungrateful that the federal government, since its founding, has a holiday forcing you and me to take time to be thankful. For many of us, the only time that we, 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 we consider the things that we are thankful for is when we are, our mouths are watering and there is, there is turkey ready to be eaten, stuffing ready to be stuffed with, right? We, we have to pause. Okay, three things, three things. Grandma says three things. Okay, okay, okay. And we come up with it because we're starving. And the football game has been paused. You want to see how it ends, right? We have to have a holiday forcing us, <coughs> excuse me, to be thankful. And even then, that holiday is surrounded by anticipation of the next holiday. In fact, right now, there are shops in this city, places you can go where you can skip Thanksgiving in anticipation of Christmas as I age. I'm, I'm liking Christmas less and Thanksgiving more. My daughter got on me the other day. You don't like Christmas. What do you not like about baby Jesus? I thought, well, I like baby Jesus. Me and baby Jesus are tight. It's everything else we throw around baby Jesus to the point you can't see him over the wrapping. It's amazing, isn't it? That we turn a holiday about, th- about Thanksgiving 
into a time of consumerism and consumption, which proves we are not truly a thankful people. The truth is, ungrateful people are miserable people. This is demonstrated in the countless studies that show that grateful people, those who have a pattern and live a life of gratitude, statistically live longer, happier lives. It is the lack of gratitude that I believe that lies at the core of our society's misery. We covet what others have. We envy those who have it and allow bitterness to consume, hate to drive us, and ingratitude to define us. Notice David's question again. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me <coughs> Excuse me, thus far? David's prayer opens up with the vital question. It reflects a heart of humility. You see, he, he receives God's grace not with an attitude of entitlement, but with an attitude of humble faith. I'm reminded immediately when I see David's words of Casting Crown's first great song, which asks the very same question. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose the light away from my ever wondering hearts? Not because of who I am, but because of what you have done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Can we be honest and say that such a prayer is foreign to the American ear? You have been raised to believe that self-esteem esteems. In reality, it betrays. In order to keep pumping yourself up, you have to start believing lies that you know that aren't true. Here's a lie. You are not the center of the universe. You ain't. If that hurts you, welcome to reality. You are not the center of the universe. The world does revolve around you. Your life is not going well. Sin has devastating effects. Brokenness seems to be the norm in this fallen world. And the problem is not only external. You can't just blame everyone else for all of that. You go get them, guy. You're awesome. Every, all the problems is everyone else's fault. No, the problem is internal as well. We can spend our lives lying to ourselves in the mirror, or we can humbly confess and state the obvious. Again, Casting Crown sings, Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call out through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you have done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. In fact, this is, this is demonstrated in David's choice of words. Here he is reflecting on his very present, who he really is as he looks in the mirror and what he sees as someone who is unworthy of God's grace, not entitled to it, but unworthy of it. And you'll notice David uses two words constantly. And I'm willing to bet just in, in a fly-by reading of it, as we did earlier, you notice some of them. The first one is used 10 times in about 11, 12 verses, and that is the word servant. It's the word he uses to describe himself. 
Verse 19, you have spoken also of your servant's house. Verse 20, for you know your servant. Verse 21, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Verse 25, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. Verse 26, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. Verse 27, the God of Israel had made this revelation to your servant. Later in verse 27, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Verse 28, your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Verse 29, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. Verse 29, again, with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Are you noticing a pattern here? Remember who David is. He's not the little shepherd boy anymore. He, he is the giant slain military warrior king over Israel, the mightiest king of Israel thus far. And what is it that he sees himself as he stands before God? An unworthy servant blessed by who? Well, his favorite term in these verses is Adonai Yahweh. Your Bible probably translates it as Lord and the word God in all capital letters. Notice that verse 18, who am I, O Lord God? Verse 19, and yet this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. Verse 20, this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Verse 20, for you know your servant, O Lord God. Verse 22, you are great, O Lord God. Verse 25, and now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. Verse 29, for you, O Lord God, have spoken. In fact, if we wanted to be more technical, we could take all the uses of, of God, all the uses of Adonai, Master. We could take all the references to Yahweh, here translated God, and we could add probably double the number of, of examples here. You see, what he's doing here is bringing a contrast. I, though king who has servants, understand that I am ultimately your servants. My title really is meaningless when you stand before God. I am but a servant. You are but the sovereign, gracious God who can give whatever you want and you can withhold anything you want. He looks at his presence. I was, I was reminded of what we discussed two Wednesdays ago from Matthew chapter 20. It's the story of the parable that Jesus tells where all the workers got paid the same even though they, they worked different times. And we don't have time to get into all that. And one of the things that we, we saw in application is that if you live your life as if you deserve first, you will always feel as if you are last. But if you are standing humbly before God, realizing what you deserve from God is last, you will find when you count your blessings, you feel like you've been made first. Isn't that what Jesus says surrounding that parable? The last will be first, the first will be last. And then he says the first will be last, the last will be first. So having received this covenantal blessing from God, David responds with humbled gratitude. After all, again, he's but a lowly shepherd boy. All that he has was given to him by God, and he does not deserve an ounce of it. What is, what is David seeing as he looks in the mirror? As he contemplates upon the grace of God, he is seeing that God's love endures forever. And that should be enough to draw us to our knees in gratitude. But that's not where David stops. We must move quicker. He, he asked the question, who are we? Notice not, not who am I, but who are we? Here, David considers his past. He moves considering himself in the present to his past. So not only is, is humility vital to godly thanksgiving, but so is honest reflection. Notice he does two things in verses 22 to 24. First of all, he reflects on his community. Just look at it real, real quick, if, if you will. Um, 
Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people. Notice right away, it's interesting, isn't it? That when David considers his past, he goes way back, right? He's not considering his, his, his upbringing with his mother, right? He's not talking to a therapist. He's talking to God. He goes farther back to that. What is David doing? He, he is reflecting on his community. See, David is very different the way we think now. David is an individual who sees himself part of a community. We see ourselves as, as the community is part of us. Why? Because we think we're the center of the universe. Think about it. it you, when I grew up in, in the world, not to sound old, but I couldn't care less if I sound that way, that that. If I wanted a job, they did not care about my preferences. The business is the ones that made all the decisions. If I had a bad day, no one cared. Better do your job. Now it's flips. Whether we're talking about schools and education or, or the marketplace or, or, or work or vocation or career or anything, it's become now, as the individual, you must bow to what it is that I need. The world has really flipped. That's not the way David sees the world. David understood that his story is part of a much broader story. So he looks back, not with entitlement, not with self-righteousness, but he looks back and he says, you know, I've noticed in a pattern here, God redeemed slaves, not because they can earn anything from him, not because they've deserved anything. They are slaves. Everyone else overlooked them, but not God. And what is the word David has been using to describe himself? A slave. A slave. And that means, secondly, David reflects on his community's past. It's striking. He isn't looking at his story. That's the problem with Americans is that we view the past with what Lewis would call, C.S. Lewis would call, chronological snobbery. It's actually a technical term that's used in academia now. We would say, well, if I were living in 1776, I would have been appalled by slavery. If I were a founding father, I would have never have accepted what it is that we did because I'm just too good for that. If I were of my grandparents' uh, generation, I would have been more open-minded. Don't you wish that I lived back then? We wouldn't have all the problems we have now. Chronological snobs. We look at the past with self-righteous shame. We're enlightened. They're bigoted. We're right. They were wrong. David, on the other hand, looks at the past with a sense of conviction. The temptation of the past remains the same, regardless of the upgrades of technologies, regardless of the advances in medicine or the popularity of public policy. The core of man's heart has not changed. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10. I think I have it up there. I do not. Uh, actually, I do. 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common in man. That is to say that what it is that you're facing, your parents face, your great-grandparents face, and generations and generations, thousands of years prior to you face, because you can change the culture, you can change the language, you can change the system, but the heart of man is still as broken and fallen as it ever was. David looks back and he, he realizes, man, they were broken people. But what did God do? He was gracious to them. And look what he's doing again. One who is unworthy of God's enduring love, he is doing it again. Isn't God faithful to his promises? This is why reading the Bible is so hum humbling. 
The same nonsense that went on in the wilderness generations, the same nonsense that goes on in our churches, the same nonsense that made Jesus roll his eyes with the disciples, it's the same nonsense that goes on in the privacy of our homes. He looks back, he sees broken people blessed by a gracious God. And so as he reflects, he shows gratitude. Ultimately, he sees history as God's story. In fact, notice there, this is the work of God he sees. Verse 23, who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem? The temptation for any king like Nebuchadnezzar that comes after David in Babylon will say, look at what I've done. David, by looking to the past, it can be real about his present and realize, look at what God has done. So he's not just asking, who am I? Who are we? Who are we? Let's look at our, our past. And what we see is generations of faithfulness to a people who do not deserve it. Church, that is you as well. You don't deserve God's grace anymore. David did. By the way, this was David's consistent approach in gratitude and prayer. In Psalm 91, it says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. In other words, he will count his many blessings. And he will name them one by one by one. You see, the past teaches David that God's love endures forever. Let us move quickly to the third question, and that is, who are you? Here, David is considering his future, and here he is asking God, who, who is he? If humility and reflection are crucial to a thankful heart, then so must be hope. Recall our study some time ago, I believe it was last Sunday even, on the theology of rest. The Sabbath principle is, it draws the worshiper to reflect on God's faithfulness of the past, the assurance of the present, and the hope of the future. Think about it. If you're not supposed to work on Sunday, that means you can't cook on Sunday. In Southern Baptist, that means no fried chicken on the Sabbath, right? Panic. But on Saturday night, you're trusting on Sabbath rest. God will take care of you. I can take this day off. I can find my rest in him because God's proven faithful in his past. I see the assurance in my present and my hope is ultimately in him. Not in my ability to administrate or to schedule or to, to be creative, but in him. Thanksgiving makes the same presumptions. David began with his immediate context. God is gracious. Look at it there starting in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. Notice there, he is affirming God's promise, not just for where he is now, but forevermore. God will keep his promise. And what does he do? He looks back and he sees that God has always kept his promise. So once again, David continues the pattern demonstrated in this poetic prayer. When looking at himself, he saw unworthiness, but he saw God's greatness. When he looked at his past, he saw his unworthiness, but he also saw God's graciousness. When he looked at his future, he again sees his unworthiness, but he reflects upon God's goodness. After all, the establishment of David's house, which we looked at last week, isn't about David, that's the whole point of the text, isn't it? Especially if we put this passage in its chronological order. 
You see, we talked about this last week, that chapter 7 probably belongs later in the life of David. One of the reasons we say that is because it says that David has found rest from all of his enemies. In chapter 8, or, yeah, chapter eight David goes to war. Right? So it's likely out of order. In fact, this promise is probably given after chapter 11 sometime after the scene with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. You see, despite blood on David's hands, despite unfaithfulness, despite his sin, God shows his enduring love even for the broken. And that is why he can say, I can look back to our nation's past and it isn't pretty, but look what God's done. That means I can look at my past and I can say, it's not pretty, but look what God's done. I can look in the present and realize, man, I'm still figuring this stuff out. It's not pretty, but look what God is doing. And that can lead me to conclude, God will take care of everything else. In fact, notice it there in verse 26, your name will be magnified forever. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. Verse 29, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. Notice, may it please you. All that I am and all that I do is, is but your servant. I, I come to serve you and to live to your glory. This is the key to joy. This is the key to contentment. Gratitude. Without gratitude, you'll, you'll, you'll never have those things because you'll always be wanting. you always need more. you always need something else. But the pause and to see yourself standing before a holy and sovereign and righteous God should strike fear and it should stir gratitude. I want to quickly, we're going to be late, but remember, it's Danny's fault, so don't blame me. I'm going to offer just a few points of application, and we're just going to look at the Bible. I told you that the Bible is saturated with exhortations to be thankful. And I had to uh, knock out about half of the ones I wanted to do. First of all, we see here that think, thanklessness is a sin. Thanklessness is a sin. Let that convict your heart. Romans 1.21 says, For although they, the Gentiles, did not know God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, so they became futile in their thinking. Basically what you have there in verse 22, claim to be wise, became fools. We gave them PhDs in a TV show, and yet everything they spouted was nonsense. Next verse, they, they worship the creature rather than the creator. What happens when you're not grateful for the one who has is, who, who is given you blessing? What you end up doing is you end up seeing everything from him as a curse and yourself as the center of the universe. And what comes out of that is chaos and nonsense. Likewise, Paul will state in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Yeah? For people will be lovers of the self. Yeah? Lovers of money. Yeah? Proud. Yeah, arrogant, guys, abusive, come on, hello, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. Oh, skip that part, right? You think they're related? I'll let you decide. Thank, thanklessness is a sin. Secondly, God is worthy of thanksgiving. This shouldn't be news, but sometimes for many of us it is. 
uh, 1 Chronicles 16, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now, you Bible scholars here are thinking, that's not in First Chronicles, that's in Psalms. Yeah, it's in Psalms about 10 dozen times, and it's outside the Psalms another 10 dozen times. Maybe the Bible wants you to hear something. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. By the way, th th that includes in good times and bad times, we'll see. Ezra says the same thing, and they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. Where do they hear that? They read it in their hymn book called Psalms. And all the people shouted with great shout. And they praised the Lord when the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Isn't he faithful to us? Psalm 7, 17, I will give to the Lord thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise in the name of the Lord the Most High. Notice, if God is righteous, he is worthy of praise and gratitude. Psalm 28, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts. I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. You should probably memorize that song, that, that, that verse. Write it down. Meditate upon it. And move on from a miserable life because you have much to be thankful for. Look at all that is there. He's strength. He's shield. A heart trust in him. I am helped. My heart exalts. Does that describe you? Get the working Christian. Revelation 7, 12. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be our God forever and ever. Amen. The, the, the John ran out of adjectives when you read that. So clearly, God is worthy of thanksgiving. Thirdly, thanksgiving is the will of God. Christians are to be a people of gratitude, and we don't need a holiday to remind us of that. Psalm 44, 8, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Psalm 79, But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Psalm 92, we read this earlier, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Ephesians 5, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude jokey, which are out of place. Instead... Be thankful. Boy, wouldn't the world be a better place if we actually applied the Bible to our lives. And I'm not just talking about the pagans. I'm talking about business meetings. I'm talking about what goes on in Sunday school or in our hearts or in our conversations with other believers. It's amazing, isn't it, how simple that principle is and how hard it is for us to obey it. Same thing in Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always. You see that always. What does always mean? It means always. You know what it means. Don't act like you don't. For everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have everything you need to be thankful to God in the fact that He exists and He has sent His Son. Give always thanksgiving to Him. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You see there, many of you struggle with anxiety. I know this because I've met you. Can I give you a hint of how you can deal with your anxiety? You are not the center of the universe. God is. Be grateful. Thanklessness is what lies at the root of your anxiety. Your worries, your fears, your doubts, your bitterness, your envy, your malice, your anger. Thanklessness, and that's a sin. No wonder it produces more sin. It's what it does. We've got to move on. But hey, it's Danny's fault, so we can go as long as I want us to go. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, that's everything, right? It's going to be in word or deed. Do everything, in case you didn't hear him the first time. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Jesus. Everything. No footnote there. I looked. It's not even in the Greek. 1 Timothy 2, 1. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, and intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. You know what it says right after that? 
including the king, unless, of course, you voted for the other guy, right? <laughs> that, too, is in the footnotes of the Greek. Fourthly, Thanksgiving is not limited by circumstances. You notice that in all those verses we just read? It never says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, usually. Be thankful, for he is my rock and my shield, sometimes. When the bank account is full, the bills are paid, the kids still call me on the weekends, my guy wins the election, my party is ruling, and life is the way I want it to be, then give thanks. I'm unaware of that verse. Maybe you can find it. But I will tell you what it does say. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. See, here's the problem. Many of us think gratitude and joy and love and contentment, all of those are, are, are limited by circumstances. If I'm having a good day, I'll be thankful. Having a bad day, I get to be angry because it's a bad day. It's not what you're going to find in Scripture. Rather, it says, rejoice Period, regardless of circumstances. Do not become a slave of your circumstances. You'll never be free. You will always have a reason to complain. Always. Unless, of course, you have your eyes on Jesus. How about Job? He rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and, 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 and what? Worship. He worshiped through his grief. What he didn't do is say, man, what a bad day. I guess God doesn't love me. He takes his questions. He takes his sorrows and in worship and in prayer and in supplication and in thanksgiving, cries out to God. And what does the rest of say? He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be him. You want healing through grief? You want healing in your sorrows? not going to be in your circumstances. They're bad. It's going to be in Christ. Finally, Thanksgiving is freedom. This is just a summary of it all. The remedy to your bitterness is Thanksgiving. The remedy to your depression is Thanksgiving. The remedy to anger, malice, hate, pride, discontentment, anxiety, fear, everything else is Thanksgiving because it takes the focus off of me and onto a sovereign God who is gracious for his love endures forever. So I'll ask you again here this morning. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy that you are called to bear? Well, you should count your blessings, every doubt will fly. And you will be singing as the days go by. So amid the conflict, whether it is great or small, do not be discouraged. God is over all. Count your many blessings and angels will attend. Help and comfort and give you to your journey's end. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings and see what God has.